Hello, and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I've got a great conversation for you today. But before we get to it, I want to let you know about a new podcast here on the network. Brandon Buddha and I are discussing weird fiction stories by writers such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, and M.R. James, who, besides being a really great writer of ghost stories, was also a medievalist at Cambridge. And indeed, this is really the only genre in which academics, classicists, medievalists, historians, archaeologists, and even rare book librarians get to be the heroes in the fight against cosmic horrors. You don't have to read along with us to enjoy the show. We'll let you know what each story is about before we talk about its themes and motifs and put it in a historical context. So if you like stories about scholars who research so hard that they summon world-destroying monsters that must be defeated, please check out Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. And this is a great lead into today's conversation with Serena Higgins about the Inklings' use of King Arthur stories in their own work. Serena is a graduate student in English at Baylor University, as well as the chair of the English department at Signum University. She edited the volume The Inklings and King Arthur, which was published in 2018, and won the Mythopoeic Award, which is a big deal and very well-deserved. You've heard me talk with scholars whose work has appeared in edited volumes before, but I've, I've never actually asked them to talk about what an edited volume is or the work that goes into it, but we're going to learn about that today, and Serena has some great advice for anyone who might be about to edit a volume for the first time, so this is extraordinarily helpful. But the bulk of this conversation is about how a group of modern writers made use of medieval literature about King Arthur, and the modern use or appropriation of the Middle Ages is known as medievalism, and this has become a really important topic in medieval studies over the last few years, and I'm looking forward to including more interviews about medievalism in the future. But for now, we've got this really great one. So let's get to it. Well, Serena, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So even though I think most of us who've read a book or seen any movie have some sense of who King Arthur was and uh, something about his Knights of the Round Table. Maybe we could just start with a little background on King Arthur and Arthurian literature. How do you define Arthurian literature? That is an excellent question, and it's actually the first question that I approach in the book. How do we define the Arthurian legends? Because they're so vast, and there are so many different stories that create this large story complex. And really, this story has been going on for 1,500 years. It starts with these Welsh chronicles of a warlord who saved Britain from the invading Saxon hordes after Rome pulled out. And then these stories grow over time, and eventually in the Middle Ages, Arthur is made into a high king, and the chivalry is added into his story. And that's where we get those most common images, the round table, Excalibur, Lancelot, and Guinevere. Those come into the story around the 1300s or so, and primarily in French literature. And then the story just continues to grow, and many different generations of writers and then later filmmakers and game designers adapt this story, and they always adapt it to their own times. So it's hard to know how to define Arthurian legend. It's not even certain whether you need King Arthur himself in a story for it to be Arthurian. Is It might be an Arthurian story if you just have Merlin in it, or if you just have Tristan and Isolde's tragic love story, or maybe even just a grail quest. So this it's a big it's a big web or a big complex of stories and images that have been used over and over and over again in British, French, 
literature and then the literatures of other nationalities as well. Well, let's let's turn now to the Inklings. Who were the Inklings, or maybe even what is the Inklings? Right. So the Inklings were a group of men who met in Oxford in the 1920s and 30s. And the core of the group is C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney, J.R.R. Tolkien, and later his son Christopher. And then also at various times, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, Neville Coghill, Hugo Dyson, Humphrey Havard. They define themselves by people who had a tendency towards Christianity and towards writing. Those were the two things that tied them together. They were writers of various kinds, and they were all Christians, but they had a huge variety of faith differences among them, Roman Catholics, Protestants, an anthroposophist, and someone involved in the occult as well. So the several medievalists. That's right, (laughs) yes, several professional medievalists who taught at Oxford or Cambridge as professors of medieval Renaissance literature, but I think all of them were fascinated by the Middle Ages, um, either professionally or as amateurs. They were drawn to the stories of those times. Yeah, so it's clear to see what the connection with the Arthurian literature, especially of the Middle Ages, would be. What are some of the Arthurian works of their own that the members of the Inklings wrote? A really important one we didn't know about until recently, and so it was actually the catalyst for me to edit this collection on the Inklings and King Arthur, because it's Tolkien's work, The Fall of Arthur. Now, we knew previously from Humphrey Carpenter's work and some other scholars that Tolkien had tried his hand at an Arthurian poem, but we knew he had put it aside, as he did many things, and we didn't know how sizable it was. Well, it turns out that he wrote four cantos in a... um, in a literative meter, it comes to about 70 pages in the published work. So it's a pretty sizable Arthurian work. So once I read that, then I said, aha, all of the major inklings wrote something Arthurian. We better study this. Uh, So C.S. Lewis wrote several poems about Arthur or about Lancelot. There are chivalric themes throughout the Narnia Chronicles, but then his most important work that deals with part of the Arthurian legend is that hideous strength in which Merlin is a major character. Owen Barfield wrote very few Arthurian works, but he does use a kind of a Grail Quest theme underneath a couple of his novels, and he did write one adaptation from Mallory and Christiane, which is as yet unpublished and still kept in the Bodleian, the archives there. Charles Williams, on the other hand, the Arthurian story was absolutely essential to his thought, and he came back to it over and over and over again. He started working on it quite early in his career, 1912, and he was still working on writing more Arthurian poems when he died in 1945. So he published two collections of Arthurian poetry, Taliesin through Logres in 1938, and The Region of the Summer Stars in 1944, lots of other scattered poems essays, and an unfinished prose commentary. And what are these Inklings doing with Arthurian literature in this, in, in this work of their own? Or why are they making use of these Arthurian motifs and Arthurian themes? Yes. Uh, let's take the why first, because I think that leads into how they're using it. Oh, they're using it for so many reasons. One is it was actually a surprisingly popular topic for literature at the time. And this, I think, has been a bit overlooked as well. So I was trying to sort of fill this gap with the book also, which is King Arthur crops up as a popular theme at various moments in British history. And the period between the two world wars and during the Second World War was one of those times. 
T.S. Eliot uses an Arthurian image in The Wasteland. Uh, in case some people don't know, The Wasteland comes into the story that the, the grail is being kept at a castle, usually Castle Carbonek in some of the retellings, but the king has been wounded by this terrible this terrible blow, this terrible wound, and he is bedridden and impotent, and the health of the land is tied to the health of the king. So all the land around him is waste. The land is not fertile, and there's a desire for someone to come and restore the kingship and thus restore the land. Well, T.S. Eliot saw modernism as being a kind of a wasteland, a desolate place, and many of the World War I poets saw dearth and infertility as a theme of their times. So there's a sense of looking for restoration, looking for health of the land, looking for some kind of spiritual sustenance. And several of these writers, especially I think Lewis and Williams, saw some kind of chance for hope in the Arthurian legends, whether it's restoration of a proper ruler proper kingship in the face of European tyranny, whether it was the sense of being on a spiritual quest and finding meaning beyond a materialistic scientism of the times, they thought that these stories could give hope. So then how they use the stories, well, each one is, each one is different. What they have in common, I think, is that idea of spiritual quest, that somehow we all need to find something beyond the material world, something beyond ourselves, some kind of connection to the divine. So I think that's how they use them in common. But beyond that, they use the stories quite differently. And I don't want us to fall into the error of thinking, well, these four guys had sort of the same perspective on the literature. They didn't. They had quite different perspectives. Tolkien's goal in his writing was to create a mythology for England. And what he did was he sort of wandered around through the whole history of British literature looking for unexplained stories. And then he would write a backstory for them such that they connected to his elvish legendarium. (laughs) So he was trying to make this totalizing mythology that all of British literature could feed into. And it turns out that he tried to do that with King Arthur. The notes that he left for his unfinished Fall of Arthur poem say that he was going to have Arthur sail away into the West And then Lancelot was going to sail after him to try to find his beloved friend and king and was never going to return. And then Tolkien writes the mysterious words, Arendel passage, which means he considered having Lancelot be a sort of figure like in his later mythology of this elvish wanderer who becomes a star in the West, who's sort of this point of hope and who is connected to these magical islands in the West that are removed from mankind, but from humankind, but that we all have a, a chance that we can get to these islands that are closer and closer and closer to the divine. So that's how Tolkien thought of using it, of connecting it to his elvish legendarium. But he, he did end up rejecting that in the end and not, not connecting it. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and that's an absolute shame. I, this is one of those books that I, I, I wish we could go into the library of books that were almost written and pull right. it off the shelf. Yeah. I mean, he tried to do the same thing with Beowulf, too. He he tried to do the same thing with King Sheev or Shield Sheafson, have him be one of these mysterious figures with an Arthurian or Avalon-like departure that these mysterious spirit beings, presumably his Valar, take this king away to the West in a boat to the undying lands. So he's just trying to essentially pilfer all of British literature and use it for his own elvish mythology. Lewis went about it a little differently. He didn't have as much of a totalizing 
kind of way that his imagination worked the way Tolkien and Williams did. He was more of a, a Jackdaw, Jackdaw Lewis, maybe, <laughs> that he would pick and choose, oh, I like a piece of this, I like a piece of that, I'll put them together. That, uh, that results in Narnia being what Tolkien accused it of being a hodgepodge of throwing together different mythologies. Like you can't have Greek and Roman and Norse and Arthurian mythology all thrown into the same pot of soup. No, we won't, we won't get off into, there are obviously really good arguments for why Narnia is constructed the way it is. But Lewis did grab a little bit here, a little bit there and throw it in. And in that hideous strength, he's really doing, I think, an homage to his various friends. He throws Numenor in there as a wave to what Tolkien is doing. And he throws some of the idea of Logras that he takes from Charles Williams in there. And he throws in Merlin, who's a sort of a Yeatsian figure in some ways. And I think he's trying to build this intertextual universe in which he's bringing in his friends' secondary worlds because he's already sees the work of his friends as becoming part of the canon of British literature, perhaps. But Lewis is also using it as a commentary on the scientific things he saw going on in his day that worried him. So he sees Arthuriana as being part of this thoughtful tradition of respect for the natural world and dignity of the human person and connection to the divine. And he was afraid that certain materialist or determinist trends in science were stripping that away. Well, and now maybe for for the big one, what about Charles Williams? What is he doing with Arthuriana? Charles Williams is doing lots of things with Arthuriana. I would say what he's doing is the opposite of Tolkien. Tolkien is taking all of British literature and trying to pull it into his myth that he's making up, right? But instead, Williams is trying to take all the ideas that he's developing, all his theology and imaginative concepts, and he's making them Arthurian. So for him, the Arthurian myth is the dominant story. Perhaps to use an outdated word, it's his meta-narrative. So I'll, I'll touch on a couple of the things that he's drawing into it that I think are really important. One is his theology of the city. He sees the city as an image of order, of hierarchy, of meaningful interactions among people. And then he uses sort of a, a macrocosm of that in the Byzantine Empire. So he creates this anachronistic historical conflation. He takes historical events from around the year 500 to 1453, and he conflates them all down into King Arthur's lifetime. And he also erases the East-West split of the church from his history so that he gets this unified Roman Byzantine Empire and England is a province of it. And this all has to do with his theology of the kingdom of God on earth. So he's very much into order and pattern, and he uses these layered systems of occult symbolism to try to show God's work in history and in literature and in the human body throughout his Arthurian legends. That's one big thing he's doing. Another big thing he's doing is he's using Arthuriana as a way of exploring what he calls romantic theology. And romantic theology is a branch of the Via Affirmativa, which your listeners are probably familiar with the two ways, the cataphatic and the apophatic way, the affirmation of images or the rejection or negation of images. Williams was interested in both. Characterologically, he was drawn to negation. He was drawn to self-denial, to chastity. But in his poetry, he called himself the poet of affirmation. 
and he was trying to affirm images, especially images of the human body and of sexuality. So for his 1938 volume, he actually worked with an artist, Linton Lamb, at Oxford University Press to draw a map of Europe and then superimpose the figure of a nude woman on top of the map. And then he talks about the various geographical regions of the empire by referencing the body part that's associated with them or by referencing the zodiac sign that's associated with that body part or by referencing the occult virtue on the Kabbalistic Sephirotic tree <laughs> that's associated with that body part. So clearly this makes his poetry rather difficult to read, but it also gives it this rich and layered imagery. And he's trying to do this to affirm the beauty of the human body and to affirm sexuality and romantic love as ways of knowing God, as sort of rungs on the ladder for created beings to reach towards God. It's a beautiful idea, and he is addressing a gap in Christian theology and praxis that very few Christian traditions have a really rigorous theology of sexuality and romantic love, and even fewer have any kind of praxis that actually works in the daily lives of believers. Unfortunately, it went very wrong with Charles Williams, and both in his poetry and in his personal life, it turned into the objectification of women, abuse, and even violence against women. And in the poetry, this is connected with disturbing imagery of colonialism and imperialism. So it did not, it did not really, he did not succeed in creating a beautiful, affirmative, romantic theology. But he did try, and it does make for fascinating poetry and a, a sort of a job of decoding his poetry as you make your way through it. Oh, yeah, I forgot to even mention the novel, which right. is probably where <laughs> listeners should start um, with War in Heaven is probably his most accessible novel. And it's just a delightful, lively Grail Quest novel that involves a car chase across England and a black mass and spiritual battles. It's very exciting. Well, now for, I think, even a, a broader question. It sounds like this intersection of Arthurian literature and the Inklings touches on almost every discipline and field within the humanities, from Middle English literature to the cultural history of the First World War, Christian theology, even Platonic philosophy. So what was the, the goal of the Inklings and King Arthur? The first modest goal was simply to fill a gap in the literature that since The Fall of Arthur was published, it became clear that here was a huge theme that hadn't yet been covered in Inkling's studies. There was one previous book way back about Arthurian imagery in Lewis and Williams and then other non-Inklings, but none that considered Tolkien and Barfield. So that was the first modest goal. The bigger goal was to push forward the critical rigor in the field of Inkling studies. We're at a really exciting moment in Inkling studies right now with the current generation of scholars in the field. We're ready to move forward critically. So we have sections in the book that cover really, really important ground that not a lot of work has been done on in the field of Inklings. Now, other scholars are also working on these approaches to the Inklings, but not through Arthuriana. So we have a whole section on gender, and we have a section on post-colonial approaches. So these are really important because we want to apply this new critical rigor. And furthermore, <laughs> a very big goal of mine was to show the Inklings in their modernist context. So obviously their medievalism is extraordinarily important. And 
that's primarily what you and your listeners are interested in. But we also need to look at them as modernists. And this has not been studied as much. We haven't looked at them in dialogue with the great modernists of their time. And they certainly were. They were friends or enemies with most of the big important modernist writers of the time, such as Eliot is it is the biggest example. Eliot, Auden, Joyce is there on the periphery somewhere. So it's important for us to see them as war poets and writers during and between the two world wars who are keenly aware of the political and historical temper of their times and who were writing into that and who were providing alternatives to it, but not in a reactive head in the sand dinosaur kind of way, but that they were keenly aware of the questions of their times. And yes, they often drew on the past to provide answers, but that's because there's so much depth and riches in the past. They were essentially saying to their culture, don't throw away this wealth of medieval literature and the insight that it can give into the human spirit, and into the kinds of stories that feed the human spirit. So I think that's how they were using Arthuriana to provide an alternative, but they definitely were speaking into their times. They were not unaware of what was going on at the moment. There are a lot of articles in this volume. It's it's an impressive number, really. So what are some of the the highlights? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, some of the work that some of the scholars are doing that touch on these uh, different areas from gender to post-colonialism to modern literature. We start by dealing with the questions of intertextuality. How do later Arthurian works dialogue with earlier Arthurian works? So there are two chapters there that talk to each other in fascinating ways. It's Brenton Dickinson's chapter on intertextuality and Charles Hutter's chapter on the idea of Avalon. And they together discuss how the Inklings created these secondary worlds and how these secondary worlds are in fruitful dialogue with previous writers. And Dickinson does that in a broader way across Lewis, Lewis's Arthurian works, and then Hutter does it specifically on this one particular image of the idea of Avalon or these blessed isles in the West. So he looks at what sources Lewis and the other inklings used for these and what they contributed to that idea that's new. So that's, that's really important to see what sort of craftspeople the inklings were in their writing, how they were talking to earlier works and then how they were bringing that into dialogue with their times. Christopher Gertner's chapter also does that, and it's important that he brings in Barfield's ideas of the evolution of human consciousness and of participation, because Owen Barfield tends to get short shrift in Inkling's studies. The section on history's present has some important chapters on on World War One and these these works. So looking at the fall of Arthur as a post-World War One text, looking at how Tolkien depicts the savagery of war and what it does to the natural landscape. There's been some important work done recently on Tolkien as sort of an early eco-critic or his environmental concerns. And so this chapter by Taylor Driggers speaks to those concerns as well, what war does to the natural landscape as well as to people. And then John Hooper's chapter looks at Narnia with its wasteland imagery and puts that in dialogue with T.S. Eliot's wasteland imagery and shows how Lewis offers these pleasant places and these moments of restored kingship that bring health back to the land and that have moments of peace in times of conflict. I've already talked a bit about 
the post-colonial approaches, which Benjamin Utter's chapter does a really good job of looking at the problematic aspects of Charles Williams' Arthuriad, but also how Williams is using questions of the other in sympathetic and empathetic ways, and also as a critique of the self. I'm particularly excited by the geographies of gender section of the book. It has three important and controversial chapters on Tolkien, Williams, and Lewis on gender. And from my point of view, these chapters raise as many questions as they answer. They sort of cover some of the problems of the ways that these authors depict women and gender roles. And some of these chapters provide answers either in source criticism or through philosophical approaches, but they also leave a lot of open questions as well. So I'm optimistic that these these chapters on gender will promote responses, you know, even critiques, even uh, responses that really don't agree with the perspectives that are shared here, because there's still so much more work to be done on that topic. And then the book ends with a section on spiritual pilgrimage and grail quests and questions of the Eucharist. And this is the part that delves the most deeply into Charles Williams's theological use of the grail. Well, given how massive this edited volume is, I'd actually like to talk to you a little bit about your work as the editor of the volume. And you've already told us a little bit about how the idea came about, but there's a big gulf between having an idea to do a thing and actually doing it. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got started on this project? Sure, absolutely. And I can point out things that went well and things that I would do differently too, in order to help others avoid some of the pitfalls. As soon as I got the idea, and I honestly can't remember if I had the idea or if Brenton Dickinson had the idea or another friend, but a few of us were just batting around the idea that now that The Fall of Arthur has been published, we need a book on this. And I didn't want to write a monograph on the topic at the time, and especially I wanted a wide variety of critical perspectives. So I just wrote up a call for papers, and I started spreading that call for papers anywhere I could think of, especially in the fields of inkling studies, but also in fields where medievalists, Arthurian experts would find it. So mostly through social media and websites and blogs, but also through some journals, putting out the call for papers and some societies spreading the word. And then I also approached certain individuals that I knew had good things to say on these topics and requested that they send in a paper proposal. So this was all happening in the fall of 2013. So through the winter of 2013, I got in all the proposals, and I started sorting through them. And then I recruited peer reviewers to review the abstracts, the proposals with me. And I I even included one non-scholar in my peer reviewers, just an interested reader, because I wanted to make sure that even though this is a peer-reviewed, rigorous academic volume, I wanted it to be readable by the avid fan as well. I didn't want it to be only an academic book read by two dozen professionals and that's it. I wanted it to span that. So we we collaborated online. This is all being done at a distance with the use of Dropbox folders and things. And here's the first the first pitfall, which is I would recommend anyone who's editing a volume to do more research first into what collaboration tools to use and what software to use. I did not make enough use of tools at the time. I was just an independent scholar at the time. I was not affiliated with a university, so I didn't really have access to as many resources at the time. Um, So now I would use bibliographic software, indexing software, and some collaboration tool 
such that everyone could see everyone's chapters and so that it would be easier to keep track of drafts and revisions because it became cumbersome moving around the different Word documents and tracking changes and um, you know just keeping track of all that. So I had the peer reviewers help me decide which proposed papers to accept. And that was a challenge because as you said, it's a huge book. So obviously my biggest problem was saying no to paper proposals. <laughs> but I had in mind that I wanted this emphasis on Arthurian geography and that I also wanted a variety of critical perspectives gender studies, eco-critical, post-colonial, theological approaches, historical approaches. And I also wanted a wide range of voices. So I wanted some established scholars, and I wanted emerging young and independent scholars. And I also wanted to be as multi-international as possible to sort of bring some fresh voices into the field. So I'm thankful that I was able to do all of those things, but the result is that we have 19 chapters and a sizable introduction and a conclusion and a book that is 566 pages long. <laughs> but that's how that went. So it was just the open call for papers plus approaching people. That's how I got the contributions. And what were some of the hurdles involved in putting together such a massive volume of scholarship with so many contributors? The biggest mistake that I made with pursuing permissions was that I left it till the end. So um, what ended up happening was that the book was completely done. The book was totally ready to go. We were, we could have gone to press and then it took a year and a half after that um, to get all of the permissions to use the quotations in the book. So I would have done a couple things differently from the beginning. First of all, I would have asked my contributors to limit the number of quotations that they used. And there are, there are sort of certain percentages and certain word counts and line counts that different estates and publishers have in mind. So it would be a good idea to, for anyone to find those out ahead of time. Now, maybe you and your listeners being medievalists don't have quite as much difficulty <laughs> um, since most of your works are in the public domain now, right? Yeah, that's right. We but don't as, often have this problem. <laughs> right. But as a modernist, quoting from the Inklings, um, we had to we had to deal with this quite a lot. So that's the first thing I'd do is I would start on it sooner. Then I would ask the contributors to quote less. And I would also ask them to keep track of exactly which quotations they used and submit that to me as a separate document, because then I could send those directly to the publishers when I was requesting permission, and I would simply start that process much earlier on. And then I would also keep in mind that it's an expensive process. The estates and publishers charge fees for these quotes, but they were they were very kind. The estates and the publishers were difficult to work with in the sense of getting in touch with them and that it took a long time, but the actual interactions I had with them were very kind, very helpful. When they found out that we were being published by a small press, they reduced their fees. They worked with me to say, you're quoting too much from the fall of Arthur. We'll let you rework that. So I actually did end up having to go back and take out a lot of quotations from the fall of Arthur specifically, but they were very wonderful to work with. And one of the most amazing people to work with was Owen A. Barfield, Owen Barfield's grandson, who is the literary executor of the estate. And I worked with him directly to get permission for the quotations. And he also wrote me a letter of introduction to the Bodleian and gave me permission to access restricted materials there as well. So there were very great blessings in this process, even though it did take a long time, uh, delayed the process. But then even the fact that getting the permission, paying the permissions fees is expensive, even that ended up as a blessing because I crowdfunded it. 
And the whole process of running a crowdfunding campaign was super fun and was another great networking experience. It was absolutely wonderful to see the people who came forward to support this project. The people who supported this project ended up being a kind of who's who list of scholars in the Inklings, plus just fans and avid readers who wanted to see this book come to life. And so they supported the permissions fees and actually we raised enough money that we could then get an amazing artist to do the cover art which was another really fun process we ran a contest through the website 99designs to choose the cover art and the winner of the contest just so happens to be a friend colleague and student at signum university and so she produced the cover art and so that's yet another way that this book is a product of community and that that was really fun yeah, that's actually a pretty heartwarming story. <laughs> I've sort of skipped over the middle part there, the actual editing, which was a real joy, a lot of work, because, you know, then the chapters came in and we went back and forth and back and forth on revision several times. And again, it was a real privilege to work with these excellent scholars. I was able to meet with some of them in person and then also work with people all over the world. And my contributors are located in the United States, Canada, France, and China uh, and, the, and the United Kingdom. So it was wonderful to work with these people all over the world and then meet with several of them in person as well and talk about our chapters. But again, I would use better collaboration software such that we could all see each other's work and have a little bit more crossover through the, through the volume. Some of the things I worked on as an editor included making some of the chapters a little bit more accessible in order to hit just that sweet balance that it is a rigorous scholarly volume, but an avid fan can read it. And then another way that I worked was trying to have some of the chapters talk to each other a little bit, making cross-references, putting people in touch with each other so they could share parts of, of their chapters. So that was a very rewarding work as an editor. Well, before I let you go today, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your own work on Charles Williams. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your research agenda? I can. And I have to tell you two things here because there's Higgins 1.0 and Higgins 2.0. <laughs> and Higgins 1.0 was up until I started my PhD at Baylor University two years ago. And that research was all focused on Charles Williams and to a lesser extent on C.S. Lewis. So I, I wrote a sort of a master's thesis type project on the development of Zehnsucht in C.S. Lewis's works. And then I edited Charles Williams' The Chapel of the Thorn and wrote an introduction to his Arthurian poetry. I also have my blog, The Audist Inkling, where I was blogging chronologically through Charles Williams' works, and then editing The Inklings and King Arthur along the way. But then I started my PhD at Baylor, and I'm going in a different direction. So I am not continuing in the field of Inklings studies. However, that work is going to be still relevant. My dissertation topic, I believe, I'm still early on, I'm still in coursework, but I believe my dissertation topic is going to be on magic, specifically on practicing magicians in England and Ireland from 1890 to 1945 who are also playwrights, and I'm investigating how their occult high ritual magic influenced the plays that they were writing at the time. So the two major characters then are Yeats and Charles Williams. So Williams will certainly have a chapter or at least 
play a major role in this work. But I hope that it will be a much larger study with questions of magic and liturgy, magic and miracle, magic and science, the theater and the church, the theater and the two world wars. And I have about six authors who were initiates in hermetic secret societies who were also playwrights. So that's the direction that my research seems to be going at the moment. Of course, that could change, but that's what I've mostly been writing about since I've been at Baylor. Well, that sounds literally fantastic. And I I wish you the best of luck with that. And I look forward to having you back when your PhD dissertation is turned into a monograph in uh, a number of years. Well, thank you. That would be delightful. Well, Serena, thank you so much for talking to me and my listeners today. Thank you very much for having me on. This has been a really delightful conversation. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And you can also find our new show, Elder Sign, there. And we really hope you'll check that out. Next time, I'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Urban about concubines in early Islam. But until then, awe wale.